0: If you're in John chapter 15, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump into the text. John chapter 15, making our way through the farewell discourses of Jesus of Nazareth. These were his final words to his followers, his apprentices, those who are coming coming under his, his master tutelage to become like him and to do what he did in the world as they were with him. Father, only your Holy Spirit can apply the words of this text. We can get up here and we can read the Bible and we can sing songs. We can laugh. We can make jokes. We can do all the things. But unless you, Holy Spirit, come, unless we are one with Jesus, we can do nothing. Make this community one in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit this morning. Make us one in the joy of the kingdom of God And as this morning, we were praying in pre-gathering prayer, so many visions of chains being broken, wounds being healed, scales coming off of eyes, a great weight being lifted off of the souls of your people, a burden that they've been carrying, a brokenness that they haven't been able to come out of. I do. I pray in a super Pentecostally charismatic way this morning. Let there be literal breakthrough this morning. Move the ball forward in our lives today. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. So from foot to horse, steam to fossil-fueled locomotion via ships, planes, trains, and automobiles, our modern societies in our current moment find themselves in what I can only describe as a state of mass transience. We are a people who are in constant movement especially in the United States. We Americans always set the standard for the rest of the world, good, bad, ugly, and beautiful. One Gallup poll said that one in four Americans have made a move in the last five years. I'm one of those. I'm pretty certain most of you are one of those. We are, as Americans, one of the most mobile, moving, geographic countries in the world. According to data from the Census Bureau... The average American will live in at least 11 different local, not just state by state, but 11 different local residences through the course of their life. I, too, fit that statistic. Now, of course, I'm not saying that this is by default something that's bad or negative. We move around for all sorts of actually really good reasons. There are work opportunities which we should pursue for the well-being of our lives, There are family needs. We want to be close to or farther from, in some cases, our families. Uh, There are bad to better situations that moving enables us to experience. And of course, with the Christian community, there is the ever-present calling to move, mission. I'm actually praying that Neighbors would be a global missionary discipleship network that we would do old school stuff like supporting missionaries to go to Papua New Guinea and places of that manner. But this mass transience, this constant movement in the states and in western modern developed countries, I've observed in my own life and in the lives of others that it can also be motivated by this Always looking forward to what may be next in the next place. This constant unsettled searching for greener grass upon which we never find ourselves. It's this kind of frenetic transience. This unsettled searching. It's this type of movement that actually wears the human soul down. Because we find ourselves, when motivated to move for reasons that are not of the Lord... When we are moving, we find ourselves living in this state, and maybe you find yourself there this morning in a state of kind of disconnectedness, just this low-grade sense that I am disconnected from a place, and more importantly, I am disconnected from a particular people. The great environmental novelist, I can't recommend any of his novels enough for all of you to read this summer, Wendell Berry, He said, if you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are. And I think he's spot on. And this is why. The Hebrew Bible says that God placed Adam and Eva, dirt and source of life, Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden, settled them in a garden with his presence as the place and each other as the people to whom they would belong. And they were to be, in that sense, rooted in the garden, in God's presence, and in the people, each other. They were from that place of rootedness to go out and multiply, cultivating art and industry and cities and societies and culture. Bearing fruit is the image that the Hebrew sages gave us to describe the cultural mandate and the original creation mandate to go forth, multiply, and bear fruit. And so Adam and Eva's dirt and source of life, Adam and Eve, their children and their children's children and their children's children's children, they were to spread exponentially across all of the earth, multiplying garden peace and multiplying God's presence throughout the world. And that fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of that mission was actually to be fueled and sourced by their settled relationship with God and each other. As they remained with God and each other, these blessings multiplied throughout the earth. But our forebearers believed the lie, like you and I believe the lie, namely, that the good and true and beautiful life isn't found in trusting obedience to God, but the good and true and beautiful life is created by our own ingenuity, by our own energies, and by our own designs. And so we try to create without the creator. This is the plight of the human experience. We build kingdoms without the king, as Mark Sayers puts it. And so in that sense, the partaking, that partaking of the the forbidden fruit, that moment of taking the good, true, and beautiful life into our own hands and taking it into ourselves, that moment spins all of us out of place. Sin uproots our souls. And so Jesus of Nazareth... He returns us to the garden. Jesus came to take us back home. His words, they settle the soul when we truly listen to them and obey them. And practicing his way, discipling or apprenticing ourselves under his master tutelage, roots us again in this place of the presence of God, And it roots us again in the presence of each other for the sake of bearing fruit in the world as the original creation mandate called us to. So from our text this morning, John 15, 1 to 17, there are three primary emphases that Jesus makes in this very, very famous section in the farewell discourses. Number one for you note takers, remain in him. Number two, remain in each other. And number three, bear fruit. Number one, remain in him. Number two, remain in each other. And number three, bear fruit. Let's talk about remaining in Jesus. Ten times in this section, Jesus uses the Greek word meno. Meno. Can you guys say meno with me? Meno. There, you've learned a Greek word. Well done. This word is variously translated stay or remain or abide. It's a pretty thick word as far as its imagery. It intones the idea of intentionally making one's home with or intentionally making one's dwelling place in, menu. Now, a common motif from religions of all of antiquity, particularly in Jesus' time, this common motif of the vine and the vineyard was everywhere. And so when Jesus employs the word, remain, stay, abide, and then illustrates it with the vine and the vineyard imagery, he was drawing on something that was already thick in the theological and the cultural imaginations of his followers. He was also using the land surrounding them to illustrate and drive his point home. Remember, the societies of Jesus's day were agrarian. We are industrial and technological. They were farmers and fishermen. They were surrounded by hills that had been tilled and planted and watered and that bore fruit seasonally. And each of the followers of Jesus, the listeners of Jesus, they would have immediately understood when he was talking about vine vineyard imagery, they knew what it took to produce a good, healthy, fruitful crop. Jesus was also using the vine and the vineyard imagery to echo specific texts from the Hebrew Bible, from their prophets. For example, Isaiah, one of the most famous songs in his Israel's history. He sang this song of God planting a vineyard from which God would eat sweet fruit. But Isaiah's song was actually more of a lament than a celebration because Israel ended up only producing sour grapes that set the Lord's teeth on edge. (laughs) And so Jesus, he chose this kind of multi-layered, multi-faceted, very thick imagery of the vine and the vineyard to do one very specific thing for you and I today and for his followers in the first century. He was trying to drive home and define the vital nature of the relationship between himself and his followers. Read with me again in verse 4. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain, abide, stay, make your home with, dwell in me. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A direct contradiction Contradiction to the lie that we all believe that we can design the good, true, and beautiful life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so just as the branch is attached to a vine and draws its vitality from that deep interconnection, so the disciple of Jesus must be attached to Jesus, remaining in him. It is this intimate, mysterious, beautiful, profound union with Jesus that is all disciples' source of life. It is this union with Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit that creates our identity as loved children, born again, adopted, brought into the kingdom of God, forever saved and safe. It is this union with Jesus that gives us our sense of value. He who loved us so greatly, he would die for us. It is this union with Jesus which gives us meaning. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everything that you and I are longing for today comes from, is answered in, is provided through this remaining and abiding in Jesus. And anything less than this level of full attachment to Jesus results in the very least in a spiritual anemia or at the very worst, spiritual death. Read with me the ominous words of verse six. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So what we want to do with those words echoing in our souls is we want to ask the question that that should raise in our hearts. How do we remain in him? I want to make my dwelling in Jesus. I want to make my home in Jesus. I want to be attached to the vine. How do we do that? I'm so stoked about this Over the next five weeks, over the next five weeks, we're going to launch into a little mini-series called The Art of Abiding. And so over the next five weeks, Sunday by Sunday, we're going to concretely answer the question, how do we abide in Jesus? Covering these practices and postures of heart. We'll cover things like The Secret Life. I'm super stoked about this teaching next week, The Secret Life. Don't want to miss it. Silence and solitude, Sabbathing, prayer, scripture meditation, all of the kind of Christianity 101 things that we do as a means of abiding in Jesus. We'll dig into them in detail. But from our text, from our text this morning, let's look at some other key factors in the way that we abide in Jesus. Number one, we remain in Jesus by being pruned. By being pruned. Read with me in verse two. The gardener, our father, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. No shame in this. We're all in the same boat, but we all spend our life's energy trying to avoid problems and pain. That's what we devote our days to, from sunrise to sunset. I want to avoid problems and pain. Then, when the inevitable, 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 Close enough, whatever. When the inevitable troubles, losses, and pain of life, when those things inevitably hit, unavoidably hit. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love public speaking. When the pain of life hits, no matter how hard and how much energy we divest in avoiding the pain of life, when it hits, we then spend all the rest of our energy looking for saviors of all sorts from anywhere that we may source them to deliver us from our plight, except for apprentices of Jesus who are attached to the vine. When problems, issues, pain, troubles, trials, and tribulation, as the Bible defines these things, when they come, And without question, if you're not in them right now, you will be. When they come, we, the apprentices under the master Jesus, we learn to, as his brother James said, rejoice when these troubles and trials come. The most counterintuitive, jarring teachings of the New Testament. We actually learn to embrace these things The pain and the problems that we are so trying to avoid, we learn to allow God to use them to form our souls. Now, track with me, please. We do not believe God is the source of our suffering and pain. I recognize I'm bringing up thousands of years of theological complexity in a single paragraph in a teaching. We do not believe that God is the ultimate and final source, that He's some puppet master pulling the strings of His people. I'm going to produce pain in this one and blessing in this one because, ha, 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 ha. That is not the God of the Bible. That is the God of our cynical imaginations. That is a God of a culture gone awry and brokenness. That is the God of a people who have lost Him, lost place, lost His presence, and are wandering east of Eden. The God of the Bible is not our source of suffering and pain. The relationship between our problems and God's providence is terribly complex. And so much cynicism and birth is birthed in our minds because silly Christians give simplistic, reductionistic, black and white answers that are actually terribly wrong when problems and pain come into our lives. There are not simple, easy answers to the problem of pain in this world and God's providence. The issues that we face, they are brought about by innumerable and immeasurable factors. There's our sin. There's others' sin. There's a real, spiritual, malevolent being of personal agency, the Hasatan, the Satan, the Leviathan, the beast, the snake, this wicked entity and his minions that want to destroy us. There's a broken world. There's a broken universe surrounding us. And then there's the mystery that is us stuck in our little myopic, tiny little state here in transcendence, vastness, eternity. The scriptures are clear, though, that God works in, God tenderly, carefully, specifically, providentially uses the pain, the things, the troubles, the trials of our lives. He uses them as a means of of shaping us into who we truly are. Karate Kid fans, anybody? Cobra Kai, anybody watching this? The original, the original, yeah, Cobra Kai, that's a winner. (laughs) The original, the original karate kid, Miyagi, Miyagi teaching, teaching little Daniel how to shape the bonsai tree? Pain. So specific, so careful in what he would cut away. God is using pain to prune us, to shape us into something of such exquisite beauty. We can't even imagine what he's doing in us. If we respond by remaining in his love, we are pruned through pain. God works in our pain, our loss, our sufferings, and he is very strategically, as a surgeon, cutting away anything and everything that may choke our personal, vital relationship with him. Dear friend, fellow family member, in your pain, you have to trust. You just have to let go. You are not going to be given answers the way that you want them. The cross and the resurrection. A good father who loves you and wants to bring you back to the garden is the only answers that suffice. And so surrender. Number two, we remain from our text in Jesus by being pruned. And number two, by being in the word. By being in the word. Verse three, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The great English Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that Christian's blood ought to be bibline. Christian's blood ought to be biblical, bibline. What Spurgeon was saying is that the Bible should be so rich and thick in our minds and hearts and souls that it flows through our being as the very life force of our existence. Because Jesus' word is the source of our cleansing. Jesus' words and his authors that followed up after his ascension, the apostles, the authors of the New Testaments, their words correct us and renew us and guide us. And so the very blood flow, the very essence of our being ought to be bibline. We are Bible people, saturated in the Bible. I'm feeling so pressed on this of late I want our church, I want the church to return to the authority of scriptures. In a day and age where false narratives and pseudo forms of authority are shaping the souls of humanity, we are a people shaped by holy writ, by the scriptures, as we learn to interpret and apply them, ancient practices in modern peoples. Making God's word our home, indwelling it, frames our view of the world in alignment with truth, It helps us to ask the right questions and it gives us the answers that we would have never expected. Number three, we remain in Jesus by being pruned, by being in the word. And number three, this is going to sound so simplistic, by being loved, by being loved. Verse nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. It's probably about eight or nine years ago. It may have even been a decade ago. I have been meditating in this verse for maybe a decade I was doing my thing. I love reading huge swaths of scripture. I developed my own Bible reading plan, and I know most of us don't have time to do this, but I have the privilege and the honor of getting to do this. Huge swaths of scripture in the mornings. And I was just ripping through my reading this particular morning. And I was in John 15. I was actually in the entire farewell Discourse this morning, and I was just trying to get it done that day. You know, one of those days, I just got to get my Bible reading and get through it fast. So I'm just ripping through it already, living like into my afternoon on some Monday afternoon in my head. And this verse, this verse, John 15, 9, leapt off the page. As I'm a runaway freight train trying to get to my day, it leapt off the page and just stopped me almost dead in my tracks in my mind. It was like the frenetic transience of my mind, trying to get through scriptures, trying to get to my day, was just stopped, full stop by this text. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I could barely move. This this infinite love is the love that Jesus has for you right now in your pain in your trouble in your circumstance in your issue trouble and pain this love this love the love that exists eternally the love that exists between the eternal father son and holy spirit as the father says to the son i love you as the son says to the spirit i love you as the spirit says to the father and son i love you this eternal dance of love and adoration and delight the power of a trillion sons worth of love is focused on you holy right now in jesus as the father loves me so do i love you And it is this love in which we make our home. And so the storms of life, the social unrest, the politics, the plague, they are all trying desperately to displace us. And yet we remain in this trillion sons force of triune love. The same love in which the father loves the son is directed at you and I today sitting out here on the blacktop with no mitigation of that love. Unconditional, uncontrollable torrents, waves, unstoppable, forever, eternal, infinite love is what you are abiding in right now. And so even our worst external circumstances... And even the most violent internal battles with our anxiety and our depression and our sin cannot separate us from this infinite love of God. This was St. Paul, the great church planter. This was his rally cry to the Roman church. As he said in Romans chapter 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, present or future, no, I- nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To remain is to believe. And to believe is to spend many, many moments mindfully breathing in and getting into our body, our biology, this grand theology that the triune God is so in actually in love with us. And it is that love, that inseparable, unstoppable, eternal, infinite love that actually fuels the Christian's obedience. Fuels our obedience. Verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Brilliant missiologist Leslie Newbegin said this, Love can only be expressed in obedience. Jesus' abiding in the Father's love was expressed in his obedience. Jesus had no program of his own. He planned no career for himself. He sought no identity for himself, no image. Jesus simply responded in loving obedience to the will of his Father as it was presented to him in all the accidents, contingencies, and interruptions of daily life. And he did so among all the personal and the public ambitions and fears and jealousies of that little province of the Roman Empire in the time of Herod and Pontius Pilate. New Begin would going on and he would say, So the disciple will abide in the love of Jesus by following him, following him exactly on the same road. Now, if we were going to dial in the commands of Jesus, he summarized them for us in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What is the greatest command of all? The scholar, the legalist, the rich man asked him, and Jesus said to him, love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Love for each other. The primary focus of obedience in the Christian's life is to love the Christian next to you. Read with me in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Number two, we are to remain with each other. Spirit, come, for there are wounds and hurts in this place that I want to see healed so desperately. We remain in Jesus' love, and number two, By obeying his command as an act of making our home in his love, we remain with each other. Love for one another is expressed in the same way that Jesus' love was expressed towards us, by dying for each other. By dying for each other. Read with me in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Dial in with me, lean in, stick with me in this. Because this is my prayer for our church and really for the church being renewed in Western modern cultures like ours. That we would, with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul, love God by remaining with each other in love. Physically, literally remaining with each other. In a society of mass transience, where there's just a constant flux of movement, this idea of a long-standing, committed, covenantal relationship in which we are in each other's physical proximity for a long time, it just seems impossible. It just seems like a unicorn with Bigfoot riding on its back at the end of the rainbow, hanging out with a leprechaun, eating Lucky Charms. (laughs) Like, it doesn't exist. And yet... Jesus's followers, we must make the intentional decision to embrace each other at a level of relationship that can create a context and foster true love. In the sixth century, Benedict of Nursia, he founded an order of monks who would go on to become the Benedictines, and his communities have actually spanned the generations since the sixth century. And to this day, modern Benedictine monks, one of the hallmarks of their lives together is what they call the commitment to stability. Stability. (laughs) These monks, these monastic orders, the Benedictines, they commit to daily seeking God together according to a rule of life. They have these ways and times of praying together. They resolve, as they enter these monastic communities, they resolve to pursue their deepest hearts' desires not personally, just in prayer with God, but to pursue their deepest heart's desires in interaction and interdependence with each other in these communities. In fact, when you read through the Benedictine vows of commitment when they step into these monasteries from novitiate to actually being a Benedictine monk, it sounds kind of like marriage vows. (laughs) In good times and bad, these humans covenant the whole of their lives to be together. To live with each other. Now, we are Protestants, we are not monks. <laughs> we are modern, urban, transient San Diegans. I am not about to call us to cloister up in a monastery and neglect the outward call of mission that Jesus calls us to. Where the monks failed throughout the centuries was they did cloister up in these buildings out in the deserts, and they forgot that the world was dying all around them. Although I would argue they were arguing, we carry the burdens of the world in prayer in our monastic hearts. I do think that we moderns have a lot to learn from the Benedictines' call to remain with one another in obedience to Jesus, I'm not going to soft pedal this and pretend like this is easy. This, this, this commitment, this call to remain with each other, it is hard. Hard, vulnerable, painful, damaging, delightful. Add whatever adjective you can to it. It's all of those things and more. And it is a discipline and it is a practice. This level of relationship with we hyper-individualized, personal, I do it myself, Americans. This level of relationship makes us super uncomfortable. When I read about the Benedictines and when I'm sitting up here calling us to a level of relationship with each other, I am squirming on the inside. I am an introvert. I like being in the mountains by myself. And here I am calling our church to a level of relational radicalness that is making me kind of freak out on the inside. Jesus' command to remain with each other stands throughout the ages for monks and Protestants, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. For the regenerate community called the church, Jesus's command is for us to love one another, and we cannot love one another by constantly leaving one another. It's simply not possible. Now, in a very loose sense, I'm rolling out something here that's going to take shape over this next fall. We're joining in with a whole circle of churches And calling our communities to a rule of life of sort, a Protestant, Western, urban, monastic rule of life that will have times of prayer together and structure our communities together. All of these things, but we're not going to be monks because we're going to be missionaries in our city. It's this hybrid. But in a very loose sense, I think that we are being called to be, I don't know, urban monks committed to each other in stability. And think about this. This makes each of our community groups, rather than being cloistered off in a desert building, each of our community groups can become missional urban monasteries, wherein we are multiplying God's will through our obedience of loving each other to the neighborhoods of our city. In fact, each of our missional communities, each of those little urban monasteries dotting the city of San Diego and beyond, I pray, become new gardens of Eden, in the neighborhoods where humans are remaining with God and remaining with each other. I'm not talking about buying property and full communal living, although I am very compelled by that, despite all of its failure throughout all the history of humanity. (laughs) I'm casting vision for you and I to consider the disposition of our heart and the direction of our hearts towards each other. This is just an initial Yellow light to slow it down, take an inward look and say, how do I think about others around me as an apprentice, a follower of Jesus? Think of it this way. When Jesus said great love is expressed by dying for our friends, we believe that starts by saying these are the friends I want to die with. These are the friends I want to die with. I feel it. That feels super idealistic. That, that feels like, that's, that's overwhelming, Dan. I, uh, no, mm-mm, nope. I want you guys to remember that Christianity is not idealistic perfection. It's a direction. I'm asking us to consider the dispositions of our heart. I'm asking us to listen to the words of Jesus. In this modern moment of frenetic anxiety and constant trans transience and disconnectedness from place and from people, the communities of God, I'm asking you to consider what is the posture and disposition of my heart? Are these the friends that I may die with? Do I want to die with these friends? Why do I not want to die with these friends? If Jesus said, Love one another, and greater love has no one than this, but that they lay down their life for the friend sitting next to you. You can't lay down your life unless you die with that friend. I just don't know how to make sense of Jesus' teachings other than literally, they are literal. Our fear and our cynicism about community comes from deep familial trauma of which all of us have in varying degrees. Family has hurt us. We have hurt family. Our cynicism and our fear, my squirming in having a community talk like this is rooted in workplace betrayals (laughs) and of course, Church wounds, man. Oh, oh, my gosh. You know, if you're a new Christian, you're like, I will, the church is amazing. 15 more minutes of being a Christian. <laughs> because we are broken. We wound each other. Some of us have been wounded in such severe ways that we are uncertain that the church is even a place where we are safe to be. And I want you to hear something this morning, if that's you, you're justified in that. You're not condemned in that thought. You're not wrong. The wounds that you have incurred were wrong, brought on by a sinful world, by sin in you and by sin against others and sin done against you and sin that you've done against others. But none of these events, our family traumas, our workplace betrayals, our our church wounds. None of these memories, none of these events, none of them separate us from the love of God. None of them. None of this separates us from the love of God. In fact, in the providence of God, even our most horrific wounds, God wants to work in our lives to shape and prune us to, to, to create that beautiful bonsai tree, to create even more fruitfulness. But we have to respond by remaining in his love, and we have to respond to each other. These events, family trauma, workplace betrayal, church wounds, they do not diminish the call of our king to continue in the direction of love for each other, to continue to keep trying, to not resign ourselves, to not give up, to continue to keep pressing in. That command still stands over all of our wounding. And so here's the ask as we wrap this up this morning for us as a church. As we go into the summer, as we pray, as we move, as we do all the things that we're going to be doing, here's the ask, a posture of heart, a direction, a disposition in your mind and thoughts. I'm going to ask you that if you're thinking about moving away from the city, or if you're praying about this church community, that you would commit in such a way that you never leave unless it is the sure calling of God. The sure calling of God. I'm asking you to pray and say, what would it look like, what would it look like for me to discern a call to commit and not leave, literally? Just think through this with me, you guys. If we prayed and opened our hearts to the notion of us this group right here, and whoever else is not here yet, and every church that is dotting the regenerate church of the globe, Christians, especially in the modern developed Western countries, began to develop this posture of heart with one another, these localized urban monasteries that aren't monasteries because they're missional and outreach, what if each of these pockets of the kingdom of God, what if we all began to pray, okay, I am opening myself to the notion of being with this community for as long as God allows through blessing and failure, sickness and health, poverty and wealth, better for worse till death parts us. I've, I feel it. I feel it. I want to run right now. I want to run. But I vowed. I vowed to you. Win the tug to flee the city due to real estate costs, which are a joke. Political disagreements. I don't care where you stand on the political spectrum. There's a lot of ridiculous talk going on in politics. Win the tug to leave the city and leave this community, leave your community because of traffic when that tug is just pulling so hard, I want you to just open yourself to pray through what would it look like to be with this community and I'm going to discern if I'm being called to a different community with my community. I'm not saying we don't leave. I'm not saying we don't move. There are good reasons to move. There's mission. There's family. There's work opportunity. There are all of those things. But what I'm saying is the disposition of our heart in a transient culture, trying to love one another, is we process those with a community that we've said, I want to die with you. And if I'm being sent, I'm going to be sent into a community of people that I want to die with there. Does that make sense? Nobody's talking about this stuff. Because it's so overwhelming. Overwhelming. This is definitely not the way to grow a church. This is not five steps to your happiest life now. This is Christianity, though. This is Christ the King. This is the commands of the creator of the universe. And when we are wounded by another, when we wound one another, of which we have all done a thousand times over, what might happen if we, if we just posture ourselves to say, okay, okay. I'm not going to leave this commitment. I'm going to forgive or I'm going to learn to be forgiven for the sake of true healing. Are there abusive situations? Are there abusive marriages? Yes. Get out. Run. Our God would never call us to covenantally commit to abuse. He's not like that. He's not a puppet master. But 75 to 80% of what I see as far as the defined as like church abuse is just community saying, Hey, this is the way of Jesus. I don't want to walk the way of Jesus. You're abusing me. <laughs> That's what I see. And so we have to humble ourselves and we have to stand before our King together here on the blacktop this morning. Because I believe it's through this impossible love for each other. Impossible. It, this is impossible. Apart from the Holy Spirit. Apart from experiencing this inseparable love of God for us and then loving each other, this is the way that God intends to bear fruit in our city here in San Diego. Remain in him, remain with each other. And number three, we close with this, bear fruit, bear fruit. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. In context, his disciples. He chose them to go out. And each of them covenantally committed their lives to the king. And in that missionary process, they planted these communities. They actually spilled their blood to plant. They died with their friends to plant these communities throughout Asia Minor that multiplied throughout all the earth. And their fruit lasts to you and I today. Fruit that will last. Verse 16, the latter half. Whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Hear this this morning. We remain in Jesus' love. To bring Jesus' love to the world. That is what we've been chosen for. We love each other to bring a loveless society home. And where you and I are planted right now, that is where Jesus has planted you. The Good Shepherd has brought you beside still waters and green grass on a blacktop in the center of San Diego. This is the way it works. Where you are in this moment is where he has planted you There isn't necessarily greener grass apart from the calling of God. Now, if God is calling, then we must go, and we must send with great joy. But we cannot be searching for greener grass and miss that there are fields ripe for harvest right in front of us right now. Urban hubs like Seattle, where we're from, San Diego, they are notoriously transient. Average two to three years of time in a city like this. What I want you guys to do is just dream with me for just a moment, the impossible dream. God may or may not do this. It's my prayer, but just dream with me. I want you to dream of your life and generations of life after yours becoming like a legacy who abide in the city, in each other, and in Jesus' love for the sake of the city. Imagine literal, like I tell you guys this, Every week, I want to marry and bury your grandchildren. (laughs) I want to see your great-grandchildren connected, vitally connected to this community, vitally connected to Jesus. Not a five-year plan, five-generation strategy. That's what we're working on. But imagine literal and spiritual grandchildren, your spiritual grandchildren. And they have been trained by their weird grandparents with their grandparents and their spiritual grandmothers and their spiritual grandfathers, this community that they were brought up in, and they were trained by these, these odd countercultural people that they love and respect, and they held these deeply countercultural beliefs about community and, and grandma and grandpa spiritual grandma spiritual grandpa in small group they would talk and I would be there as a little kid and I remember having dinner and I remember my parents listening to one of their mentors at neighbor's church saying we want to see your great grandchildren established and abiding in the city for the sake of the city to bring the loved and the lost all into one garden place again just dream and Jesus says ask and I will do this for you ask I chose you to bear fruit. Spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, training up a a generation and a generation after and a generation after of people who have a real purpose in life, who have these strange beliefs about a peasant stonemason from the middle of nowhere, who they call their master and king. This dear church is the glimpse of heaven on earth. It's the glimpse in all of its woundedness and all of its brokenness, all of its shame, all of its vulnerability, all of its pain, all of its impossibility. I just, I don't want us to bow the knee to the incessant cynicism that denies us our prayers that God has called us to. And whether God does this or not is up to him. But at the very least, I want us to face him saying, we prayed in accord with your promises. We prayed in accord with, with your commands. Remain in him, remain in each other, bear fruit. Father, these words are just the silly rantings of of a visionary with no hope, without your Holy Spirit. But if these words are your words and if they are infused with the power of God, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, if these words are the same words that that teach and remind us that the King of Kings has forgiven us, then we can experience and give forgiveness. We can experience being forgiven. We can settle in. We can make the long haul. We can let go of our rights. We can be vulnerable and and invite our community into our prayer process of leaving and discerning that we might be sent, that we might be sent by our community to create more communities just as Adam and Eve, our spiritual mother and father, were called to do. We want to obey the creation mandate. We want to go forth and multiply the kingdom of God in the world. And so help us to do that by remaining with each other. Spirit, come. Stir the hearts of your people to just begin praying. Not committing, just praying. Father, what what does this mean for me to even pray in this direction? What does that even look like? When we are afraid, thank you that you know our fears. When we are cynical, thank you that you know our doubts. When we are broken and hurting, thank you that your wounds heal us. Father, may we settle in for the long haul. This doesn't happen overnight. This happens over generations. And so I'm praying long, long, long haul. I pray in Jesus' name that you would use myself, my wife, Sophia Nyla Joby, Taproot Church in Seattle, Taproot Church in Twin Falls, Park Hill Church, Neighbors Church, our circle of churches that are surrounding us and growing up around us, church planters that are going to be sent from us, missionaries that will be sent all around the globe, small group leaders, community leaders, workplace evangelists, prophets in the schools, apostles in the lands. I pray that you would use us to touch every soul on this planet in this generation and a thousand generations to come for the glory of Jesus. I pray that we would be Daniel 12, three Christians, that you would give us insight and wisdom to lead countless innumerable masses to the righteousness of Yahweh, to Jesus, and give us resurrection power. Father, give us a sense that the culture that we are creating in the kingdom is so different than the world around us, and may we be liberated and set free today from wounds and pain and burden to love one another. Most importantly, God, I pray, I pray that this, this tiny little sliver of the community called Jesus's, that we would love each other well here today. Just us, if we could just love each other well. Mercy, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, patience, long standing, listening, absorbing the wrong into each other. It's so idealistic, but Father, you can do this by your spirit. Help us to press in. In Jesus' name, amen.